Freeway, we um, into a new year, one week down already, nearly Christmas, getting ready for not quite that bad, but feeling like it's already uh, hurtling along. Hey, this year, we want to just kind of get in and, and, and start to uh, just encourage each other. One, Paul mentioned about the one thing we learnt this morning is not to give Paul too much information. Uh, tried to help him out and it just, it, it just undid you, didn't it, brother? That's right. 1,500 announcements this morning. We'll, we'll rectify that next week and it'll be easier on someone else, Paul. But as Paul said, one of, we, we're, we're getting into a summer psalm series to, to kick the year off. Uh, but when we finish that series, we're going to be getting into a, a series in Galatians. It's going to start around the 10th of February. And what we're hoping is that between uh, now and then, that you will begin to uh, form and, and, and find small groups to get into. Because we know that Sunday is not enough of a diet for a Christian. And, and, and we want to have other places where what you experience here, what you encounter here, what you get nurtured in here, we're also doing through the week uh, to each other in a more intimate, in a more direct, um, not in a more intentional, but a more one-on-one setting. So between now and then, we want, it. We want to be, hey, if you're not in a small group, uh, get about and find and form one and talk to Julian about that. That'd be great. He keeps track of small groups just so we know who's where and where they're, where they're being held. So that if you bob up and go, hey, I live in Seaford, is there a small group going around? We can say, hey, um, go and talk to Jules. He'll, he'll get you sorted. And in, when we get to Galatians, we're going to be having our sermons on a Sunday and it's going to be working through the book and we found a little book that the sermons are going to kind of correlate with and that book will go into our, our study groups and... Uh, don't, don't run out and buy them yourselves, though. What we might do is see if we can get a group discount on, on those books. We've got, a, we've got an inside lane there, I think, with someone who works at Kurong, maybe, and, and uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Hey, I thought, though, that as we kick this year off, as we get into 2019, we might have a look at the Psalms and, and, and peer back in and have a look at, at what shaped the worship and faith of Israel for centuries and indeed was the song and the prayer book of the New Testament church. The Psalms along with Isaiah are the most quoted, the most sung scripture by Jesus and by the writers of the New Testament. Who can follow that diagram? It comes from, um, oh, I've got to think of the people, uh, reads, Josh, help me out, you know this mob. Bible Project, read scripture. They've got a great overview of the Psalms and it all ends up in this picture here, but I'm going to kind of walk you through it quickly and see how we go. The Psalms are a collection of 150 Hebrew poems that are actually written to be, uh, to be sung, to be performed, to be prayed, either individually or, or corporately, depending on the Psalm, depending on the occasion that they're written for. In First Chronicles, in chapter 25, and in the book of Nehemiah, we read how worship leaders are put in place, choirs are appointed to go into the temple and to, and to liturgically um, sing and, and read and pray these psalms into the situation uh, that Israel and the people of God find themselves in. 
Like, they didn't just make up prayers. They didn't just let stuff drop into their heads and do any kind of crazy willy-nilly things in the temple. They had prayer. They had words that God had given them to use for situations. This book of 150 Psalms actually has five chapters within it. And if you look through the Psalms in your Bible, if you open your Bible up to Psalms there, we're in 146 today, so flip that open if you want you'll see the, the book divisions there. Book 1 begins at Psalm 3 and goes to Psalm 41. Book 2, Psalm 42 to 72. Book 3, Psalm 73 to 89. Book 4, Psalm 90 to 106. And Book 5, Psalm 107 to Psalm 145. The final Psalm in each of these chapters concludes with a a similar expression. So we know we get to the end of the book. Whatever's been discussed, whatever's been talked through, it has this refrain, bless the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it might say something along the lines of who does wondrous things, who, who, who moves towards Israel this way or is towards Israel that way. From everlasting to everlasting forever, amen and amen. And the chapter closes and it starts a new one. And either side of these two of these five chapters, we have like a standard book, an introduction. And in the Psalms, the introduction that we have is Psalm 1 and 2. And between these two Psalms, 1 and 2, we are introduced to two of the main themes that dominate the Psalms, two of the, two of the concerns, two of the thoughts that run through. There's others, but these are two main ones. Namely, that blessing in the life of the people of God comes from Meditation on the Word of God comes through from obedience to the Word of God, the Torah, and indeed the Psalms. And then that's in Psalm 1. And the other theme, the other, the other thing in the book of Psalms is that future blessing, permanent blessing, perfect blessing, if you like, comes from and will be established by a righteous rule of a Messianic king promised to David. We find that promise in 2 Samuel 7. And then at the end of these psalms, we find a conclusion. The last five psalms of the, of the book of Psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, are like this, uh, this, this mountaintop experience that closes out the psalms. All of the last five psalms, Psalms begin in the same way with an imperative to praise the Lord. I love the way Nick, because it's one of those Psalms, finish that Psalm off. Praise the Lord. That's it would have been. And in the Hebrew, it's hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. To praise the Lord. The reader is confronted in these Psalms with the gracious of, gracious, greatness of God over creation, the goodness of God toward Israel, and he's, and he's left to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Finishes, with the, finishes Psalms off with the grandeur and the greatness of God in all creation and to his people. It's this mountaintop experience evoking praise from the hearts of those who have sometimes read through the whole of the Psalms. Within these five chapters of the Psalms, and these two themes that exist in the Psalms, the Psalms fall into two major genres. Lament. You might be surprised to know that there are more Psalms dealing with lament, dealing with uh, our, our brokenness. And as, as, as the Psalmist acknowledges 
his brokenness, what he, what he, what he, uh, and Beck spoke to us just before about, you know, we're broken, but we can celebrate. We don't so much celebrate the brokenness. We, we kind of grieve that, but what we celebrate is how God restores the broken, how he puts the broken back together again. And so we're not left merely in grief, but we can celebrate the goodness of God and lament psalms, deal with uh, the pain, the confusion, the anger uh, that can come out of life. They draw attention to what's wrong in the world and they ask God for his aid and for his faithfulness based on his disclosed character, how he's made himself known to the psalmist, the exodus, the, the flood, the whatever. And the other main genre in psalms is, a, is praise psalms. These are psalms of joy, of thankfulness, worship. They draw attention to what's, what's good in the world. They retell the stories of God's faithfulness and greatness. And then there's three further genres. And look, this is, it depends which commentators you listen to and how you want to divide it up. But this is how I learned how to divide up the psalms. Of wisdom and thanksgiving and royal psalms, ascension psalms, enthronement psalms, whatever you want to call them. And each of these genres uh, of, of lament and praise and then wisdom and thanksgiving and, and royal psalms play a role. They have a purpose in the life and the people of God. They belong in the hearts of, of God's people to, to appropriately help them and help us, because psalms are actually timeless in their, in, their, in their truths, express joy and sorrow, express success and failure, express hopes and regrets. The Psalms are not merely just this personal journal of David. They're the prayer book of God's people who are striving to live faithfully to God's word, to his law, and to wait faithfully for this messianic king, for this great redeemer, for this, this great salvation that's going to save Israel. You might be surprised to know that David, Israel's king, wrote just under half of the psalms 73 of them these are psalms that are written by the king of israel from his perspective as one whose role it is to lead uh, god's people in worship and obedience to god the other 77 psalms are written by godly israelites from israelites perspective of what it is to live under the rule of a king in relationship with god's law and promise and we know some of these godly israelites Asafa, he's credited with writing 12 of the Psalms. Someone who's, or some worship leaders that are more familiar with us, the sons of Korah, probably made more familiar with us because of the band, more than our uh, familiarity with Scripture, perhaps. Worship leaders like Haman and Ethan have all written Psalms, and Solomon and Moses are credited with about three of the Psalms. And then there's 44 Psalms written by anonymous writers, but all of them, all of them, are helping God's people people to rightly interpret and rightly respond to life appropriately in a way that positions God in the center of all that's going on. Written and sung from the perspective of a king and a people who are both struggling to live and wait faithfully, these psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit to hold these people in place hold them in place of worship, to enable them to, to bring to life the character and the promise of God 
over the various situations, over the various trials, invading armies, failing crops, great crops, great produce, to speak truth to their souls until lament is turned to praise, despair to hope, fear to trust, joy, thankfulness, success, appropriated appropriately to God's blessing in their lives. The Psalms are prayerful, musical poems. And they're written to paint theological and doctrinal truths. And like all Hebrew poetry, uh, it's intended to appeal to the emotions, to stimulate a response on behalf of the individual that goes beyond the mere uh, cognitive understanding of certain facts. They aim to stir and allow the emotions to be expressed in worship, in worship of lament or worship of praise. It's truth. Well, it's actually, it's truth being taken hold of and, 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 and set fire in the heart and coming out in praise. The, the Psalms addressed the mind through the heart. Psalms take facts, what God has made known about himself, his disclosure in Israel's history, his great and mighty acts and his promises, and they put relational experience into them. Psalms are relational theology. They the Psalms speak into life as it's experienced in the light of God's self-disclosure, in the light of God's faithfulness, His goodness and His promises, in the light of human weakness, in the light of human rebellion, in the light of our sin. How much richer to us are the Psalms now that we read and sing them in light of the full revelation of God's faithfulness to us, uh, the coming of the true Messianic King, the 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 life of the true and faithful Israelite, Jesus, whose incarnation, who is actually the incarnation of the promised hope and salvation that the psalmist longs for. Today we're going to be heading to that closing group of psalms, Psalm 146, a psalm of praise, of adoration and affection for God because unlike other so-called gods, Unlike the rulers of men, God uses his power to bring salvation to the weak, the lowly, and those who are overlooked. No one is too great, or no one is too insignificant for God's mercy. This psalm seeks to invoke an overmastering passion for God in the heart of the prayer, in the heart of the singer, in the heart of the hearer. God who stands in stark contrast to the leaders, to the rulers, to the, to the princes of this world. The psalmist begins with an imperative, a non-negotiable uh, acclamation that should be universally proclaimed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise, as we said, Yah, Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. And while the psalmist sees this, this expression as the richest declaration his heart can muster, the greatest form of adoration that can come out of his lips, it's a phrase that is sadly covered for us in, in trivialization. Even within Christian circles, we have managed to rob it of its grandeur, using it with glib frequency and often uh, with sarcastic tones and rarely in recognition to the greatness, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But more to do with an unexpected turn of events. 
Australia wins the third test. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Mother-in-law comes down with a bowler, can't make it to tea. Praise the Lord. You see, we're used to it. But then there's times where we get closer to the psalmist. News comes through that the cancer is in remission. Praise the Lord. We look at the crumpled wreck that's supposed to be our car and we wonder how we walked away. Praise the Lord. Sit across the table and we marvel at 50, 60 years of marriage and we give thanks to what held it together. Praise the Lord. But still, even in its best senses, sometimes we use this phrase as a momentary acknowledgement rather than a deep, reoccurring rhythm of our heart that is constantly reflecting, constantly speaking to itself about the goodness and the greatness of God. The psalmist means it as a core of life reality out of which all other activities find their basis, their meaning, their response. There's, there's no other appropriate way to live life than in the praise of God. Praise the Lord is not a throwaway line or even a grateful response. It's an approach to life. It's the right position of a person's heart. And the psalmist declares, praise the Lord. And then he begins to internalize it, if you like. Internalize this reality. He begins to talk to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. For the psalmist, the soul is not separate to the mind, uh, to the body. The Bible knows nothing of this kind of dichotomy in the human existence. It's, it's the essence of who you are as a total being. All that I am in thought, word and deed. Praise the Lord. He reminds himself that this is how I must live. This is how I must interpret, experience life. Timothy Keller mentions that the psalmist is, is rousing himself. To shake off apathy and gloom. Using his mind or memory to kindle his emotions. Truth. Fueling the heart. Shaping the heart. So that it will respond appropriately in life. So that it will praise the Lord. Do you know the person who will speak to you the most in your life. The, the most constant voice you'll ever hear. The most constant input you will ever hear is not a teacher, not a boss, not even me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, is yourself. In a, um, in a devotional book that I use, Paul Tripp says this. Uh, no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. You're in an unending Incredibly important conversation with your soul every moment of every day. You interpret, organize, analyze what's going on inside and outside of you. You talk to yourself about the past. You talk to yourself about the future. You talk to yourself about what you are experiencing in the present. You are saying things to you that will shape your desires, actions and theology. How you do life. The psalmist says in his internal conversation, he will organize, he will soak that conversation of his life around the praise of God. 
That is where deep peace will lie. That is where his heart will find rest, no matter what the circumstances uh, might be. And then in verse 3 and 4, the psalmist goes from this internal conversation to an external conversation, and he begins to speak to the community at large now, to the congregation. And he says, a commitment to a way of life that praises the Lord means renouncement, rejection, of dependency on human institutions, on human power, of praising the things of our own hands and and our own intellect and our own intelligence. The psalmist seems to be concerned that God's people would place their praise, their ultimate security and future in something other than God, that their hearts might go after something other than God. Israel was prone to entering into uh, alliances and, and, and treaties with various rulers and powers running up to Syria, running down to Egypt, whatever it was they were doing, other than God. These powers, these these things are represented here in this word princes, rulers. To trust in human strength and power, says the psalmist, to give it a priority of praise is to trust in something that is simply inadequate. It has no power to save. It has no lasting power to save because its power is limited. It's finite. And it will face the same ultimate end that you are actually hoping that it can rescue you from save you from even the greatest empires past even the strongest leaders die and with them goes their ideas their ideals their programs their promises when their breath departs they return to the earth on that very day their plans perish and any hope with them don't place your praise don't place your affections in things that are not built to hold them that can't sustain them the psalmist now paints a contrast between human power and the power of god and and why one and not the other is an appropriate object of human praise and, and adoration the god of jacob the god of jacob is a term of endearment uh, that has relational and historic meaning to the psalmist It's a title that throughout the Psalms has actually appeared 25 times. And this is its last appearance in the Psalms. It is a name that God seems to take delight in. He keeps referring to himself in the words that he gives about himself as the God of Jacob. Which is an odd, a risky, even a scandalous choice given that Jacob is is the one character in Scripture that we can find no good thing in. It's hard to find a good quality in Jacob. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a scandalous person. It'd be like Scott Morrison every time he stood up saying, I'm the Prime Minister of the Australian Test Selectors. Like aligning yourself with them would not be a good thing, not good PR. But here lies the point. God is not affected or changed by our weakness, our dysfunctionality, our sinfulness. But we are changed when he comes into contact with us. When he moves toward us, it changes us. This is what we celebrate. The transformation out of brokenness. Our brokenness, our rebellion does not repulse God, but makes him all the more... uh, passionate to 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 come towards us to warm our hearts with affection for him 
God of Jacob conjures up images of a God prepared to do business with even the messiest of cases. And Jacob certainly was one of them. The God of Jacob is the God of help and hope for the dysfunctional, for the broken, for the abused. Those who are usually overlooked or or used by the powerful and the mighty, the rulers, the princes. The God of Jacob is the God of heaven and earth who who, who, who withheld his power when he dealt with Jacob, who withheld his glory that he might wrestle with him, wrestle with him in prayer. The God of Jacob is the God of the tired believer who has been beaten up by the rulers and the power brokers of this world. Blessed, happy are those whose help, whose hope is in this God and not the princes, not the rulers, not the promises that perish. This hope is grounded and secured in the knowledge that the God of Jacob is the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, a God of unlimited power and sovereign control over the world, who keeps faith, that is, who stands by and loves forever. There is no perishing in this God, in His promises, in the things that He has said. They don't go to the grave. He is a covenantal God, an enduring God, a relational God. All throughout the Bible, when God turns up, it's in shock and awe. It's with descriptions of His power. There's smoke. There's the trembling of mountains. There are descriptions of His universe, of the universe being His effortless creation. Unimaginable power, unimaginable might. And likewise, throughout the whole Bible, how does God, This God of incredible power put this power to work. Well, time and time again, it is used on behalf of the weak, on behalf of the vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor. Deuteronomy 10 is a classic scripture around this. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great the mighty and the awesome God who is not partial, who takes no bribes. It's quite a description, isn't it? He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. In verses 7 and 9 of our psalm, the psalmist lists the ministries of mercy that God executes on behalf of the vulnerable and the needy on behalf of those who are overlooked or abused by the powers and the rulers of this world. God executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. Now, that's not prisoners who are in prison for moral reasons. That is prisoners who are in prison for immoral reasons. God doesn't set up detention centers to put children in. God who, is opposed, who opens the eyes of the blind. That is, He heals the unhealable. He brings wisdom and truth and, 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 and enlightening to the dark mind, to the lost soul. He lifts the burdens of those who are bowed down low. He lifts the burdens of those who are dragging bottom. And then the Lord, the Lord loves the righteous. 
Who then are the righteous? Those who do likewise, who execute these ministries of mercy. Uh, in the Psalms, when, when it talks about justice, justice is not merely the bringing of punishment and judgment. Justice is seeing what's wrong with the world and moving toward it and healing it. To ignore that is to act in unrighteousness, to be unrighteous. Those who execute these ministries of mercy to the needy, whose lives live as songs of praise, praise the Lord, O my soul, not just in thought and word, but in deed. Praise the Lord, O my soul, is more than a prayer, an orientation of the heart. It's all of life. To praise the Lord is to live out His heart in the world. Jacobites, people like Jacob, those who have been served by this God, who have encountered this God, who have had an experience of His salvation, move toward others in the same way. Jacob was transformed by God at Jabal. He wrestled with God and he knew God was for him. And he was transformed. And his name was called Israel. And he was a new person, had a new purpose and a new faith and a new way of living, if you like. The psalmist continues, The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the fatherless and the widow. Over and over, God introduces himself as the father to the fatherless. Defender of widows. The carer of the alien and the orphan. And the one who will bring down the proud and the wicked. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the God of Jacob. Not merely because he made the heavens and the earth as if that's not a valid enough reason to praise the Lord. But because he exercises this unlimited power on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable. And he brings justice to those who exercise their power against the weak and the vulnerable. Unlike the corrupt systems of power that exploit people, exploit people in a bid to gain more power, to gain more control, greater influence, God exercises His power to draw near to the needy, to bring healing, to, to bring salvation. This is a God who likes to get messy, who likes to get into our stories, who's not some distant deity, not some, some indifferent deity but one who seeks to exercise his ministries of mercy to all generations, for all time. Now, unlike the psalmist, we have seen the full extent of the expression of God's power and might being used in a way to bring salvation to you and I. Being used uh, to bring salvation um, so, uh, Restoration into our lives by making himself weak, by making himself vulnerable, by, by, he, by himself experiencing corruption and abuse from princes and people of power. God coming and experiencing himself what it is to be fatherless, to grow up in a in a single parent home, to, to live as an alien, to live as a sojourner, to live in need of food, to live in need of protection, to experience all that we have experienced. In Jesus, we find the power of God clothed in human flesh. We sing that 
um, Christmas carol, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Just beautiful words. Veiled in flesh to come and minister mercy to us. In Luke, in, in chapter 4, Jesus picks up, he comes in, the first sermon he preaches, comes into the temple and he picks up a scroll and he reads from Isaiah and he reads its prophetic words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recover the sight of the blind and set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 61, you will know that Jesus literally stops and they they were familiar. The temple people were familiar. He stops mid-sentence. And rather than finish the sentence, he rolls up the scroll and he, he just puts it back and he sits down and he says, and today this scripture is being fulfilled in me. I am the bringer of these ministries of mercy. The rest of the sentence that Jesus did not say speaks of the day of the Lord's vengeance. His great judgment on sin, the justice of God against the wicked, those who have ignored the poor, who have ignored the vulnerable, those that the Lord will bring to ruin. Why does Jesus stop? Is Jesus soft on sin? Is Jesus just about social justice, social reform? No. Jesus stops because he did not come to bring the wrath and judgment of God. He came to bear it. He came to absorb it on behalf of those who fail to do justice, who fail to see the poor and the broken. The reason why Jesus can say, that he lifts up the oppressed, that he sets the prisoners free, that he restores the sight, is because he has come to take the punishment and the judgment of God against these things. Jesus has done more than stand by us like a life coach. He stands in the place of us. At a cross, he stands in for us. Remember, the Lord loves the righteous, the psalmist has said. Those who live Lives of perfect and unending praise of Him, demonstrating that unending praise of Him in ministries of mercy. Who can say they've lived like that? Who can say they've never ignored the poor? Who can say they've never lived a life that continuously praises God? Only one, Jesus. And it's in His righteousness that we can then come and have a relationship with God. The God of Jacob who uses His power to transform sinners and rebels into worshippers is now doing that through Jesus. And when we encounter the power and the mercy of God in Jesus, our hearts are warm with affection for God and we kindle our hearts with the knowledge that God who made the heavens and the earth, has borne our sin. 
And we now stand in His righteousness. And who does the Lord love? He loves the righteous. He loves us. As we stand in union with Christ, so that we can sing, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Praise God.